0: Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page where you do get early access. Link will be down in the show notes. So since there wasn't enough going on in this particular week, we also had round eight. Yes, eight of 12. Yes, we still have two more in the month of February. There will be one in March, one in April, and then that brings us into convention season. So this is round eight of the Democratic primary debates, the official DNC-sanctioned primary debates, not counting other debates, town halls, all sorts of other stuff going on. But yes, we did have our latest round this week, and this one was not what I was expecting, especially given that in this particular week, uh, we did have the final impeachment vote. And of course, Donald Trump was voted to be acquitted of both counts on the impeachment trial. And we also had um, the debacle that is still currently the Iowa caucus. As it stands right now, as of this recording, I do not see where the results have been like officially like, like signed off on sanctioned that this is the winner, but the generally accepted consensus, not going to say that this is accepted by everybody, but right now it looks like Pete Buttigieg has won the Iowa caucus by the very, very, very slimmest of margins. And of course, this is not sitting well with a certain somebody's team, but I'll discuss that more on the weekly roundup. But just to give kind of the backdrop of What is going on just this week leading up to this Democratic debate? There's just been a lot of stuff going on, and I don't know exactly what I expected out of this debate, but it was, in a lot of ways, a lot better than what I was expecting. And the first thing, the first thing that I am just so, so thankful for, thank you, debate gods, for taking mercy on us for once. Because this debate also, also, as if everything wasn't bad enough, this debate was on a Friday night. So this was Friday, February 7th. And the debate was originally scheduled to go from 8 to 11 p.m. And thankfully, it wrapped at like 10.30. So it ended a whole half hour early. And oh my God, just thank you, debate gods. Because these debates, if you've not been following my recaps, have a tendency to either run right up at time or over time or even in the initial rounds to run significantly over time. So to have one come in under time is like, thank you, Jesus, we can all, like, go to sleep on a Friday night. Like, because this is not how anybody wanted to spend their Friday night. But this is the life some of us have chosen, so here we are. So, overall, the the tone of this debate was quite different than the ones previous um everybody came out much more strident and much more passionate and it was just it was louder um it was very chippy in the beginning like there was there was some open hostility between the candidates on the stage and i think part of the tone is obviously coming out of everything that happened in iowa and also part of it is that we are now officially in primary season. Like, there is primary voting is happening. Obviously, we just had Iowa. Um, New Hampshire is on Monday, I do believe, either Monday or Tuesday. New Hampshire is going to be having their primary. Then it's on to South Carolina. Then it's on to Super Tuesday. So we're actually at the point of the primary process where the, the, the real voting happens. Like, after what it's been, God, a year and a half at this point of really lead up to this point so now the tone is kind of changing over to something that's I think I don't want to use the word desperate because I don't think that's exactly the correct word but it kind of gives you the idea of where some of these candidates are and kind of how it seems that certain people are definitely taking this a lot more seriously because they kind of know that like okay this is this is it like I got to I got to make my case now, I got to make my case in the next debate, or this is going to be the end of the road for me. So, like I said, started out very, very chippy. Um, it's abundantly obvious at this point, at least from everybody on the stage, that they view both Buttigieg and Sanders as the frontrunners now. Because like I said... Technically, at this point, Buttigieg did win Iowa, but when I tell you the margin is slim, I mean it is slim. And it's not been officially endorsed yet, so that may change. I don't think it is going to change. But as as neck and neck as those two were, and as different as those two men are as candidates, it was quite surprising to see the results of Iowa and so there were attacks on both Pete and Bernie, um, attacks on Pete from Bernie, on Bernie from Pete, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a weird, I don't want to say weird, because it, I don't know, this is a, this is an odd thing to me, because I've been following Buddha Judge probably for longer than most people have, and so... I mean, I never thought he would be a front runner, but he is now. And Lord knows Team Bernie has all kinds of conspiracies about this, and they hate him. I mean, they hated him before Iowa. And this goes to something that also became very apparent in this debate, and that is the definite, definite divide between the more centrist-slash-neoliberal branch of the the Democratic candidates that are running and the progressive branch of the Democratic candidates who are running. During this debate, obviously the differences between obviously Pete and Bernie, uh, the differences between Biden and Bernie, um, Amy Klobuchar got in there a little bit, Um, Tom Steyer tried, bless his heart, (laughs) but it, it started becoming very clear that there are two different strains of thought Going on in the Democratic Party right now, and it's it's going to become, I believe, a more pronounced difference for those who don't follow this on a regular basis. Because those of us who follow this on a regular basis already kind of knew that that schism existed. But now, if you're just coming to this, like if you're just coming to it fresh this year, you're getting kind of interested because it is an election year, and you were of the opinion that all of the Democratic nominees were more of that progressive strain, this debate, and I think going forward, is really going to highlight the fact that, yes, there are different ideological options on offer here and that they are pushing against each other to differentiate themselves from each other in that way. So that was another thing that I thought was really different and interesting and I didn't exactly expect to see it in this debate but like I said after the event of Iowa I think a lot of a lot of things are coming to the surface now a lot faster than I thought they would so moving on to some of the, some of the things that were discussed during the debate um obviously the attacks on Pete Buttigieg because I people now think he's a frontrunner. Candidates on the stage view him as a frontrunner. And kind of the biggest thing that everybody has with him is his inexperience. And it's not like this hasn't been brought up before, but Amy Klobuchar brought it up. Um, Joe Biden brought it up. And in fact, I saw just before I started recording this, uh, Joe Biden has released a whole campaign ad taking Judge to task for his inexperience and the fact that Biden was the vice president and Pete's just been a small town mayor and oh look at this and I felt like Judges response to this was a fairly good one and that was that there is a difference between experience and judgment and that a lot of the people on the stage including Joe Biden have done things and have records that are problematic and they have had problematic votes and they've and now you, you kind of have to own that, whereas he doesn't have that. So there's a lot less baggage that comes along with him. But also, when you don't have that baggage, you can kind of make that argument that, well, my my judgment is going to be a substitute for all this experience, and, and look at what these people have done with all this experience. So, it was an interesting, interesting kind of response to that particular criticism. And I don't know if I've ever said it on the podcast before. I've never made the point elsewhere, but Buttigieg, to me, is the Obama in this election cycle. He's, he's very much in that lane of the younger guy, very serious, professional guy, went to Harvard, a Rhodes Scholar, I was in the military. He's got that very, like, serious, earnest kind of wonkishness sort of like like if you remember Obama back in like 2007 that that kind of that kind of energy and I don't think it's like not quite at Obama level but it's kind of that that oh let's let's take a chance on the young guy and look he's so serious and he's got these plans and Pete is for lack of a better term a neo lib, and so he's not a progressive and he doesn't have these huge plans to Eliminate private insurance, or to nationalize anything, or to go as far as Sanders or Warren wants to go. I mean, his healthcare plan is Medicare for all who want it, which is basically giving people an option to opt into public healthcare if they'd want. If not, they can stay with their private healthcare. He doesn't want to abolish private healthcare. He doesn't want to force people onto public healthcare. So. And there's a lot of other things about him, especially as far as trade policy is concerned, where he is definitely much more of a globalist versus sort of a nationalist. That is a contrast to the progressive camp. So I'm interested to see Pete's progression from here and to see kind of, now that he is kind of on that national stage and is considered a frontrunner, I want to see how many other people kind of like, kind of catch on to him. Like, I'm very curious to see how this is going to work out. So, there was that, obviously. Another thing that I was so, so thankful for was that we did not have a long, protracted healthcare discussion, which that's not to say that healthcare did not come up at all. I mean, this is a Democratic debate. I mean, Medicare for All is Bernie's signature issue. Clearly the topic's going to come up, but at least we didn't have another half hour discussion on healthcare because it's like, my God, if you don't know at this point where these people stand on healthcare, just go back and listen to any of the other debates. I'm like, I'm just, I'm so, so done with the healthcare discussion. If we never have to discuss it again, I'll be, I'll be glad. And if it never comes up again in another democratic debate, I will be so happy. And of course, you can't have anything that touches on healthcare at all or anything in a Democratic debate now whatsoever without bringing up the opioid crisis. Because I mean, and, and I discussed this when I discussed Trump's State of the Union address too, um, I will say at least for the Democrats on the stage, they do actually have policy proposals for how they would deal with the opioid crisis. It is still not my preferred policy position, which my preferred policy position is end the war on drugs, legalize this stuff and start regulating it so that people don't get drugs that they either don't know what they're getting or they don't know their dosages or you end up getting fentanyl or just all of the different things that go into people having these overdoses that it, it this could be handled so much easier if... All of this was legal, like just so much easier. But a lot of the policy proposals that were put forth by the various Democratic candidates involved taking money from the settlements against drug manufacturers. And this is, this is kind of something I want to try to do, and I, I hope candidates do this going forward, is breaking out sort of the prescription opioid issue from the fentanyl issue because they're two separate things like they they are tangentially related obviously but it's it's two really different problems that i think need to be tackled somewhat separately but a lot of the policy proposals involved taking the money that is being won from lawsuits against the opioid drug manufacturers and using it to set up treatment facilities to create programs, to do kind of government-based solutions to these problems. And, I mean, I guess a a policy is better than no policy, but I'd still not, it's just still not going to address the problem at its root cause. And just having these sort of one-time settlement deals where you take all this money and then you do a thing, it's like, okay, this is something that's going to require sustained ongoing, just attention, treatment, things like that, that just a lump sum and building some treatment facilities is just, it's not going to do. Like it's it's a nice thought. It's a nice plan. At least it is a plan, which is more than I can say for anything that Trump has put forth on this. But it's still just, it's not, it's not going to address the problem. And like I said, I, I, I think, Ending the war on drugs, I think legalizing drugs is the way to start to address these problems and to get them under control. But of course, I, you rarely ever hear anybody outside of libertarian spheres ever pose ending the war on drugs in that particular vein. And I've not heard any Democrats do it in that particular vein either. And I hope, may maybe at some point the light bulb will go on for them, but. I just wanted to bring it up because, of course, the opioid crisis comes up, and since it did come up in Trump's State of the Union address, I wanted to compare and contrast both his response to it and the Democrats' response to it. So, moving on to gun control. Okay, I mean, obviously, every Democrat running favors some form of drug or gun control, and probably dr- drug control too. Obviously, but but gun control. And specifically Elizabeth Warren and somebody else co-signed her. I don't remember who, but the idea of proposing legislation to hold gun manufacturers responsible for deaths that occur if a person uses their product to kill another person, which is fucking retarded. That's dumb. Why in the world would that even be considered legal, like, I don't even think that would survive a legal challenge, to be completely honest, because you can't hold a third party responsible for what happens between two other parties. Like, it's just, it would be as as silly, and everybody uses this analogy, but it is a good one. It would be as, like, if I ran you over with my car, and then you sued the manufacturer of my car, like, they had nothing to do with it. They weren't behind the wheel. They weren't driving the car. So why would a gun manufacturer be... Held liable for what somebody did with their product, like that's not they. There's no control there. They have no control over what that person does. So I just it's it's another one of those, and it kind of it kind of ties back to these lawsuits against drug companies of, that have made like Oxy and stuff like that. It was Pfizer was one. Um, there was a couple of others too, but. I feel like there is an aspect of responsibility there that's getting passed off to this third party in the manufacturer that I don't feel like it is entirely correct or fair to do because a manufacturer makes a product and then it's on the market. That's it. That's the extent of their control. If somebody chooses to abuse their product or if like in the case of of oxies and stuff like that if a doctor chooses to prescribe them in a way that is not very conducive to people not getting addicted to them. I mean, there's there's nothing that a drug manufacturer can do. And to, to be fair on the drug manufacturer thing, there is some pretty damning evidence out there about drug manufacturers being like, oh, these people are they're just taking them they're eating them like candy just keep pushing them keep pushing them keep pushing them but i mean it just i don't i don't know that's just a really weird situation but it's not like there's a corollary here where say glock is like oh look people are killing people with our product let's keep pushing the product Like, no, they don't do that. Like, I'm pretty sure Glock doesn't want anybody to kill anybody with their guns. Or any gun manufacturer wants anybody to kill anybody with their guns. It's kind of the idea that you don't do that. So, I just, I don't think that that is a very productive way of handling things. But, of course, it's an applause line. Because if you don't think about it, then it sounds good in your head. Like, yeah, let's sue the gun makers for what somebody did with the guns. Like... No, well, it has nothing to do with them. That's not, no, I mean, unless you can give some kind of direct evidence that a gun manufacturer told somebody, it's "like Hey, buy our guns and go on a mass shooting." It doesn't make any sense. But moving on to what I think ended up being the most controversial part of the evening, and I, I kind of didn't see this coming because it started out benign enough. And that was with a question on Supreme Court justices. And it started out in the point of pointing out how many federal judges and Supreme Court judges that Trump has appointed already. And kind of the idea of if you, you being one of the Democratic candidates, was a president, would you have a litmus test for your Supreme Court nominees? Which is in its, in and of itself is kind of a dumb question because, of course, every president does. Every president has their litmus test for their Supreme Court nominees. Like, let's, let's not kid ourselves here. Nobody's not biased when they do this. But this turned into a Roe v. Wade conversation. And all of a sudden, the question kind of twisted from being, would you have a litmus test to would Roe v. Wade be your litmus test? And everybody on the stage who actually got a chance to answer the question agreed that yes, Roe v. Wade would be their litmus test. And many of the people on the stage advocated the idea that Congress should take up the issue of Roe v. Wade and legislate abortion rights. I say that is controversial. I personally think that that is the correct path. I feel like the whole reason Roe v. Wade happened is because Congress kind of kicked their job over to the judicial branch instead of actually legislating on it. So, yes, if Congress were to take up the issue of abortion rights, I do feel like that is the correct branch of government to do it. I do feel like if you want something to be the law of the land, you need to make it a law, which means it needs to go through Congress, it needs to go through the legislative branch, it needs to go through that whole process of becoming a law. So... While I do support that, that path, obviously everybody on the stage would like it to be that obviously the right to have an abortion is codified by law. Whether you agree with that or not, that is up to you. But it was just, it ended up being this very controversial, sort of weird I don't, I don't know if the moderators planned for it to go there, but it kind of went there and then they went with it. But just just the idea that everybody on stage seemed to be cool with the idea of not only making Roe v. Wade the, the litmus test for their Supreme Court nominees, but that also Congress should take the issue up, I thought went a bit further than I've heard anybody go in any of the debates so that was that was interesting. I, I did not see that coming. But moving on from that, um, Citizens United did come up, and Elizabeth Warren proposed a constitutional amendment to <laughs> overturn Citizens United. I, I'm beginning to wonder if whenever somebody who opposes Citizens United, even understands what the issue was at hand, what the decision was, and why it was decided the way it was. And brief recap, I've done this before. Basically, Citizens United deals with the idea of people using outside money, private money, to run ads in the lead up to an election that are particularly favorable to one person or another. And it was ruled constitutional on 1A grounds because... Corporations are considered people the same way you and I are considered people. And so, as such, corporations have the same First Amendment rights as individuals do. And so, yes, corporations do have the right to run ads and to use their money in political spheres. So, and yeah, that, that was kind of the second part of Citizens United was that political speech is speech and spending campaign funds or donating money to a campaign is considered a form of speech. So there's that. Um, We already have a constitutional amendment that deals with all those things. It's the first one. So anytime somebody proposes the idea that we need a constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United, you're proposing a constitutional amendment that's going to be in direct violation of the First Amendment. How exactly are you going to square that circle? Well, the the answer is you're not, because I don't see any way that... I mean, first of all, getting a constitutional amendment for anything is just so far beyond anything that is even remotely possible right now in our current environment. Second off, I mean, it's going to be shot down on 1A grounds, because like I said, it's going to be in direct violation of the First Amendment. So... (laughs) I mean, it's just, uh, it's, again, it's one of those things that sounds good in people's heads when they hear it and they say it. But then when you stop and think about it, it's like, okay, there's no way this is going to hold up from a constitutional standpoint. So, but it doesn't stop people from saying it because it gets applause. Something that was notably not discussed in this debate and has been noticeably absent from pretty much every single round of these democratic debates is a discussion on immigration. And I bring it up because, especially in contrast to Trump's State of the Union address, where he did make immigration a big centerpiece part of that speech and is still making immigration a key sort of centerpiece issue of his campaign, the same way he did in 2016 the lack of discussion on immigration is kind of glaring at this point because to me, especially for those on the stage, like Sanders, like Warren, who, honest to God, economically speaking, there's not a lot of difference between them and Trump. So you're going to have to put daylight between yourself but like one way or the other. And I think immigration would be a really good place, not only for the progressive candidates, but for all Democratic candidates in general to kind of stake out an opposing claim to where Trump is at to say, okay, he stands for this and I stand for the opposite of this. But the topic keeps not coming up. And I get that these are debates that are supposed to be for Democratic voters because they are primary debates, but I mean, all politics is national now. And so this non-talking about something that you know is your opponent's key issue, his signature issue, I, I don't get it. And I mean, I understand that when you're in a debate, you don't really have control over what's discussed. I mean, that's up to the moderators but i don't understand why moderators aren't taking this up either like why are these questions not being asked like why are none of these candidates being asked to flesh out their immigration proposals why i mean i mean it's just i don't i don't get it like i really don't understand how you don't discuss something that you know is just vital to your opponent i i, I don't i don't get it but moving on to my winners and losers, and I actually have, like, usually I just do winners and losers, but this time I'm going to do a middle ground, too, because I think we're getting to the point where, I don't know, some some things just are what they are, and if you, uh, anyway, the winner, or one of the winners, because I actually have two, I have two from last night. Uh, first one, obviously, being Pete Buttigieg, um, he, he stood up there, he took it. He took the criticisms, he took took the attacks, he handled them with two notable exceptions. One question that was posed to him by the moderator was on his stance on decriminalization of drugs. Now, Pete Buttigieg had originally said... And even the moderator pointed out that this was still his stance as of last night on his website, that he was for the decriminalization of all drugs across the board. And he kind of walked that back last night because she, she asked the question, the moderator, that everybody who asks the decrim question asks like, okay, do you mean all the drugs? You mean even heroin? And the answer should be yes. Yes. And when I said decrim all the drugs, I meant decrim all the damn drugs, all of them. I meant it. But he kind of walked it back and said, okay, well, I never said that. It's like, well, yeah, you did. <laughs> we we remember. Trust me. Those of us who were for decrim remember when he said that. But so we kind of walked that back and tried to carve out exceptions. It's like, well, not for heroin. And we got to do this, that, and the other. And it's like, damn it, Pete. No, just, just stand there. Stand in the pocket and say, yes, I am for the decriminalization of all drugs. So, I'm wondering if that pivot will remain. I wonder if... I didn't have a chance to go look at his website today, but I wonder if that has changed on his website. Um, The second issue that he had was with the race question. And this is something that people have been attacking Buttigieg on. And that is during his tenure as mayor, Um, he fired the first African-American police chief And also the first African-American fire chief that the city had. And there's been a lot of questions surrounding that. And so he was asked point blank about it and he kind of dodged the question. That is something that he's going to have to figure out an answer for. I mean, you can't, you can't duck the race question for forever. Not in 2020, not in a Democratic primary. It's, it's going to come up. So he really needs to come up with a better answer than what he gave. But aside from that, he came out looking fairly good. Like, he, it's... I I don't know, because I'm, it's hard for me to kind of judge, because I've watched all these. I don't know if anything that goes on in any of these things sways anybody. But, I mean, he, he did good. He got a lot of airtime. He got a lot of airtime, like, noticeably. So maybe that's a little bit of a shift too. We'll see how that works out going in the future. My second winner from this debate was Amy Klobuchar, which this is the first debate that I've seen her on stage where I've not been like, why is she here? And how is she here? And who likes this woman? It's like she finally showed up. She finally showed us something. Like there's a little bit of spunk there. There There's a little bit of fire. She had, she had some good answers Her closing statement was really, really good. Like, I can see her closing statement, provided that she does continue on in this primary, being kind of repackaged as a stump speech because it kind of had that stump speech feel to it where she's kind of trying to connect with Joe Everyman and saying, like, she told a story about how when FDR died and his body was on the train going across the country and the the, the crying farmer and somebody asked, did you know FDR? And the farmer's like, no, but he knew me. And so she kind of pivoted from that to say, like, to kind of make that I know you sort of pitch. Kind of, kind of, you know, like the Bill, Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. It's like, I know you. And I, I can see that being repurposed in the future because I think it went over pretty well. The only thing I worry about is this might be too little too late for Amy, especially since... Camps have kind of already hardened and people have kind of picked their person. I think if she can hang in, if she has the kind of money and the kind of support to do it, she might be able to find some footing amongst independents and more centrist. And she was definitely making that play for being kind of part of that, that centrist wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, that's, that's saying if she can hold in. Like I said, it would have been good to see this Amy a little bit earlier, but she's here now. She had a really good night and hey, I mean she's she's made it this far. She's made it to all of these debates. I, I still don't know how. I literally I, I don't know where her base is. I don't see anybody online who's like a Klobuchar stand. like but she keeps making the polling requirements and keeps making the donor requirements. So clearly she has a base. And so, hey, good luck, Amy. (laughs) I hope you get to stay in. And let's move on to the losers. And my losers have only got one. Elizabeth Warren did not have a good night. I mean, it's not that it was like she did anything horribly wrong. She just didn't do anything horribly right either. And there was nothing new, coming out of her mouth. It's like, if you've, if you've heard her in any debate, then you've heard her in this debate. And especially in this particular debate, you really had to stand out to get attention in this debate. Like, there, it, it was a crowded stage, there was a lot of people, there was a lot of noise, and I just, I don't feel like Liz really held her own. I don't feel like, like I said, there was just nothing, there was nothing new there. There's just Elizabeth Warren, and for what it's worth, she came in third so far in Iowa, and it was a fairly distant third compared to first and second, so I, I don't think she helped herself out any in this last round. Again, we shall see. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens in New Hampshire, I think. I I mean, at this point, I don't know. I don't know if anybody drops out before Super Tuesday at this point. I'm always open to being proved wrong, but I think everybody who's in it now is kind of in it to at least get to Super Tuesday. So I don't expect we'll see really any movement after New Hampshire. I don't really expect we'll see much movement after South Carolina. Maybe. I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. I think everybody's going to hold in until... Until it starts becoming statistically impossible for someone to hold in, they're going to hold in. So my middle ground. First off, Bernie. And I put him in the middle ground because much like Liz, I mean, there was nothing new from Bernie. Like if you, you know Bernie, you know Bernie. But Bernie was kind of extra Bernie in that way of, like, I, I understand why people like him personally. Like, obviously, I do not care for his policy positions at all, but I can understand why people are attracted to him. And I can get where the appeal is because he's kind of this funny old guy from Brooklyn and sometimes he makes fun of himself and he's got this this funny cadence and he's got that accent and he, he's got his, his his mannerisms and his hair and it just... I, I get it. I get... Kind of the like cult of a personality appeal to him. But he did make some very, very good points on foreign policy. He did make very good points on the war on drugs and cash bail. Um, He is for ending the war on drugs. Um, He is ending for cash bail. And not that you can end cash bail on a federal level, you have to do it on a local level. But at least there would be support on the federal level for eliminating or at least drastically reducing cash bail. So he came out very, very strong in those sections. And that was another part where it's like, I get the appeal of this guy, even if you don't agree with his economics. Like, I can understand agreeing with him on social issues. And I do feel like there is a lot of overlap between progressives and libertarians on social issues. I know, not a popular thing to say, but it's there. And I can... I, I, I can kind of get down with that I think I want to unpack my thoughts on that on a different episode though because it kind of goes beyond what I want to cover here but kind of the idea of libertarians supporting various and assorted democratic candidates and why they do it and so maybe I'll do that in the future but my other kind of person in the middle ground was Joe Biden and again this isn't necessarily because there was anything new coming out of Joe but I mean, first of all, he managed to stay awake for the whole thing, and he was actually fairly high energy, which is, if you've watched any of these debates, usually the first half, Joe's kind of there, he's with it, he's kind of into it, and the second half, he just kind of falls off. He was actually really high energy the whole night, was really just very passionate, very into this, was rather shouty at certain times, but very forcefully making his points, and even after after the the debate was over he was out working the crowd so he was still he was kind of like okay maybe this guy isn't like one foot in the grave <laughs> which <laughs> at such a low bar i'm sorry but one thing he did say was that he acknowledged that iowa didn't really go his way which it didn't i think he's in fourth right now and he did say that he's probably not going to win new hampshire either which I mean, I'll give you an A for honesty because it's true, but <laughs> maybe not the best thing to say right now, but hey, at least he's, he's coming to grips with his current situation. And something he did, which is controversial, depending on how you feel about all this, but um, something that happened this week is that Alexander Vindman, if you remember, he is the army general who testified against Trump in the impeachment trial and has since been shown the door this week. Um, He did rather passionately ask for everybody to give a standing round of applause to Vinman, and everybody did. And it was kind of a moment, you know, it was like, okay, like there was a little bit of a moment there. But yeah, I feel like, I feel like Joe came off a bit better than he has over the past couple of debates just because, like I said, he was awake for the whole damn thing. So... My last person that I want to talk about is Alexander Yang. Um, Andrew Yang. I'm sorry. All the names are getting messed up in my head. Um, well, he was there. And it's, and and I'm sure I've discussed this before. And especially, I've also discussed this with Tulsi Gabbard too. Um, sometimes when you are in a certain situation and he did not get a lot of airtime, which he never does when he's on the stage, same thing with Tulsi, but you got to kind of like make the most of your airtime when you get it. And I just feel like, eh, I don't know. I mean, I get that a lot of people like him and I actually asked the question on Twitter, why do people like Andrew Yang? And I've gotten a whole bunch of responses, which is kind of why I want to do a separate episode on the topic of libertarians liking certain candidates and why they like them. But, I don't know, like, I've just never gotten the appeal. I mean, he came off okay, like, fine. I mean, it's, it's, if you know anything about Yang's feel, then there's nothing really new to discuss here. Um, His closing statement, I thought was rather interesting, though, because he kind of made this argument about if people had UBI, then they would have more time to read books or write or do poetry or do art or do what the hell ever. And I made the point on Twitter, and I'm going to make it here, that it's a very Marxist argument. Because it's the same argument that Marxists make that... Well, if we had communism and people didn't have to worry about making money, then they would have time to do all this other fun, wonderful stuff, and they would just become these wonderful erudite people who write poetry and, like, paint paintings and, I don't know, sip coffee in cafes. I don't know what the fuck these people think they're going to do with their free time. I'll tell you what they are going to do with their free time. Sit around on their ass and do nothing. I mean, it's, it's a nice idea that people are just going to become these, these wonderful, sophisticated, more educated, more thoughtful people. But most people, if they had more free time, are probably just going to sit around doing nothing. <laughs> I mean, I wish I had more free time, but I mean, I don't. <laughs> I, I just, it's, it's this rather rosy view of humanity that I don't know. I mean, I guess it's nice to have, but i don't think that if people all of a sudden had an extra 1000 dollars a month and say could afford to work then maybe 30 hours a week instead of 40 that those extra 10 hours a week are going to be devoted to smart like brain enriching activities <laughs> people are probably just going to watch tv but anyway that's that's that and so we have like i said two more of these This month, in February, the shortest month of the year, we have two more Democratic debates. So, of course, those will be getting their own recaps, too, when they happen. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this one up. So, if you did make it this far, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care, and until next time.